Let's reopen our Bibles to Titus chapter number 3. And you know what? I want to just start from verse number 1. I'm not going to go into the detail of the first two verses like I was doing in last session, but I want us to maintain the context of what we're reading here. It's the Apostle Paul, probably in the maybe the fall of 63, uh, writing from Macedonia back to Crete and letting Titus, his apostolic delegate on that island, know this is the sort of stuff that you need to be teaching and encouraging amongst the Christians there on the island. And so this is what he says, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So as I said last session, Christians should be the best citizens, the most obedient and law-abiding citizens in whatever society they find themselves in unless a rule or a law is in direct contradiction to the Word of God, we Christians have to obey it, have to follow it, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's a stupid law or not. We represent obedience on planet Earth. And then we are to be doing the good things, the good works that God has given us to do. And typically, those are going to be things we do for other people. we got to keep our eyes open for how we can help other people out. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, so we're not supposed to be dissing people, to avoid quarreling, we're not supposed to be getting into these fights, these flame wars, uh, as I said on the internet, uh, you know, in our texting back and forth, because a lot of our conversations nowadays don't take place face to face, but these same rules still apply. Uh, instead of being overreactive, we are to be gentle, to be meek in the sense of having our power under control. You know, Paul has taught in other places, just because you can doesn't mean you should, doesn't mean you have to. Uh, We can scale back and must often scale back on our own rights and privileges uh, if that's going to be important for other people. Remember, the whole idea of agape love, the godlike love, is doing what's best for the other person, regardless of what it might cost us. So we have to be gentle in carrying out that sort of love and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It doesn't matter if they're rude to us. We need to be polite back to them. That's a Christian imperative. And I know that's hard. But nobody said being a Christian was going to be easy. Jesus has taught us that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us, not as they did unto us. And that we are supposed to love everybody else 
uh, in that loving, committed way, uh, regardless of how they feel toward us, because that's what God did for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because he loved us. Verse 3, and this is, this is what should kind of control the attitude here. Um, for we ourselves were once foolish. Uh, I, I love the phrasing here because it reminds me of something from the Old Testament, uh, that the Israelis were told that the reason they should be thoughtful and kind and protective of of immigrants, of sojourners, uh, of the downtrodden, was because you guys were once that category in Egypt. And so here's Paul kind of saying, you know what? You need to be nice to everybody. You need to be thoughtful toward other people. You need to restrain yourself in your reaction toward other people. Because guess what? All of us were once foolish. Yeah, we used to be the ones that acted badly. Um, Disobedient. Now, when Paul says this, uh, it's not everything here describes what he did in his pre-Christian life. Uh, He's using this in a much more broad stroke of the Christian community, uh, that all Christians used to reflect, in some form or fashion, non-Christians. So we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is a a bad attitude and bad wishes toward other people. You know, we want bad things to happen to them. That's not good. Uh, Envy, uh, in this context, I think, is is jealousy in the sense of you don't like the fact that other people are having good things happen to them, and you wish it would stop. And that's not good. You know, having a bad attitude toward other people is never a good attitude for yourself. And so passing our days in malice and envy hated by others, and hating one another. So we used to play that really nasty, um, I hate you because you hate me, and I'm going to try to do you in because you do the same to me. That sort of sinful mindset. We, as Christians, used to participate in that sinful behavior. But then something changed. And so that's why we should, as Christians, treat non-Christians well and respectfully because that's what we would have wanted done for ourselves. And perhaps it was exactly what was done for ourselves. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... So this is when the story changed, when Jesus came on the scene. His goodness, his loving kindness. I love the loving kindness phrasing here because that ties up to the Old Testament word of chesed, H-E-S-E-D, 
chesed, which is the idea that God likes us and he wants a relationship with us. So when that motivated God to begin the gospel process with Jesus coming into this world, it changed everything. Verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, definitely not, right? Uh, I was alluding to uh, the book of Romans just a little while ago that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't because we were wonderful. It was because God saw something more for us than what we were caught up in. So he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Uh, Mercy is this attitude of concern and a desire to see something changed. And so that's what pushed the gospel message, uh, is God wanted to have mercy on us. Uh, By the washing of regeneration, that's probably a reference to Christian immersion, that is, immersion into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the putting off of the old man and putting on the new man, Uh, the washing away uh, of the spiritual filth and the filling up uh, with a new life. Uh, That's all represented in the immersion uh, ceremony that is universal throughout the story of the New Testament. So by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, or renewal by the Holy Spirit, uh, when we are born again, the Holy Spirit uh, changes us from the inside out. He starts working with us to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that we have been looking at as part of the Christian lifestyle as we're reading the letters of Paul. Uh, Whom, this is the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Until Jesus Christ paid the price for sin, the Holy Spirit, God's indwelling presence, could not come into any of our lives. Uh, That's John chapter 7, verses 39 or so, something like that, uh, where the Uh, He was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given uh, because Christ had not yet been glorified. Uh, Because if there is no forgiveness of sin, there can be no presence of God. And so now that we have been saved, we get filled with Jesus' Holy Spirit. We become wealthy in the presence of God. And it's all because of Jesus Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, 
some, some language here that needs to be explained. Justified is to be declared righteous. And so we have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ dying in our place and giving us a new start. That's grace. Uh, it is unmerited favor. You know, we didn't deserve, we, didn't, we hadn't done anything that would have required Jesus to do that for us. He did it because we needed it and he could do it for us. Uh, a lot of people like to take the word grace and turn it into acrostic. An acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so we've been justified by what Jesus did on our behalf so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An heir is a member of the family, someone that's going to receive the benefits of being the child of the Father. Well, we Christians have all been made into the children of God. And as children of God, we now are part of the family and we are inheriting the family's wealth. And that wealth is the holiness of God. It is the righteousness of God. And that is also going to bring us into eternal relationship with God. So there's just all sorts of stuff packed in uh, to these little letters, aren't there? Verse number eight. The saying is trustworthy. So you can bank on this. And I want you to insist on these things. So what we've just been talking about, that we have become heirs with that hope of eternal life, that you can bank on. And because of that, Paul says, I want you, Titus, you, as my delegate, as a pastor teacher, if you will, an evangelist there on the island of Crete. I want you to insist on these things. Uh, we preachers have a responsibility to keep pushing God's word. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We preachers are constantly harping at those within the sphere of our influence, uh, those who come to the worship service and hear the sermon, for those that come to our Sunday school classes or our Wednesday night classes or our Sunday night classes, or who listen to our verse-by-verse -verse radio Bible teaching. We do this to urge the listeners to do things God's way. To, to make sure that everything they say and do is in accord with the mindset of God. And so that is Titus's responsibility. That is my responsibility. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we want people to gain uh, from all of this teaching. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies. So now we get into some of the problems 
that Titus was probably going to run up against, that Paul was aware was out there. People like to, people sometimes like to fight. Let's just be honest about it. For, for some reason, people like to um, stir the pot. People like to uh, pull the, uh, uh, the loose threads. People like to uh, just try to see how close they can get to pushing somebody uh, to, uh, to respond in an angry fashion. And Paul says, you gotta, you got to avoid that. Don't get sucked into that, Titus. And as a preacher, again, I'm going to confess that sometimes I do get sucked into uh, people that like to do exactly that. And hopefully, I don't get too far in it before I realize that's what it is, and I back back out again. Every once in a while, I have to get a reminder from someone, hey, you're wasting your effort here. Don't let them bait you like that. And then I'm like, oh, you're right. I do need to back off. So avoid foolish controversies, genealogies. Now, my wife and I enjoy doing genealogies. We like looking back uh, at our family trees. That's not what's being referred to here. What's being referred to here is some people did that genealogical tracing so that they could assert that they were better than other people. If they could say that they were a direct descendant from, say, King David, then for some reason maybe they thought they were better and uh, could order people around. Or if they thought they were related uh, to, well, here's a good example. They thought somehow they were blood relatives of Jesus. Uh, that is, maybe one of his brothers or sisters' descendants. Uh, then th- maybe they would think they'd have the right to boss people around. No. That, that type of genealogical uh, harassment should not be put up with. Uh, dissensions. A dissension is splitting people up, uh, getting people to get into their own little camps. Um, we are coming up into a uh, presidential election year, and I guarantee you there is going to be a lot of dissension. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to divide everybody up uh, based on who they ought to uh, vote for. And we Christians can't get sucked into that because we have something much more important to help bring people together, and that is Jesus Christ. And we should be more focused on presenting Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords than trying to get somebody elected and uh, down, downing and dissing and and disregarding and even dehumanizing anybody uh, that's uh, in a different political environment. That's just not appropriate. So um, Titus is told, don't get sucked into this stuff and don't put up with this stuff. And quarrels about the law. Now that's probably pointing over toward the Judaizers again. Because the Judaizers, remember, were people... uh, who insisted that all Gentiles 
had to convert to Judaism before they could be benefited by Jesus as their Savior. And it was a heresy. It was a false teaching. Uh, And Paul says, don't get sucked into quarrels like that either. And then he says, for they are unprofitable and worthless. They are not going to help get the job done. And then he evokes the idea of church discipline, which is the way we Christians have to respond to troublemakers, false teachers, false preachers. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice. Now, that follows the pattern that we've seen in other places, including Matthew chapter 18, that when a person sins and we, as an individual, become aware of it, we are to go to them privately first, that's the first step, and talk to them about it, trying to convince them that they need to repent of that sin, of that bad attitude. If that doesn't fix the problem, then we get reinforcements. We get a couple of more people. Uh, I always recommend at that level, just see if you can get some uh, church leaders involved. Uh, And you go back to the person, again, in private, and deal with the problem. Try to help them understand that you're concerned Uh, that they are involving themselves in sinful behavior, and you don't want to see that for them. Uh, It's not jumping on top of them with both feet and trying to trample them into the ground, but rather a loving concern for them. And that's what you ought to communicate. Uh, It shouldn't be a matter of argumentation and anger uh, and threats, but rather loving intervention. That's actually what it is. It's an It's a family intervention for somebody that is in deep trouble spiritually. And so you talk to him once privately, talk to him the second time privately. The next thing that we are told in the situation is, uh, if they still haven't repented, you have a family meeting. That is, you bring them before the church assembly. And we're talking about not worship, but a family meeting that's closed to outsiders. Uh, and you challenge them again. And if they don't repeat, if they don't repent, uh, that is the point at which you revoke their status as a member of the church. You kick them out of the church. You revoke all the rights and privileges as a Christian. Uh, and Jesus said, whatever two or three of you agree about on earth, that's the way it will be in heaven. And that w- those words were actually spoken in the context of church discipline. And so that's what Paul is referencing here. Let's go back, and after I've, I've given you that quick summary of church discipline, let's read verse 10 again. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So that means you've had your church family meeting and they didn't repent, so you kick them out. You 
no longer eat with them, meaning you no longer have fellowship meals with them. Uh, they are no longer part of the family until they repent. You always keep the door open for that possibility. But you don't treat them as a Christian brother or sister in Christ anymore because they aren't. They've, they've lost that relationship. And if they die in that state, they will die outside of grace. That's the reality. And that's not good. That's not what we want. We want repentance. Uh, as with God, we want that all people would repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, but here, Paul, writing to Timothy, or excuse me, writing to Titus, says, don't be putting up with all that argumentative nonsense, getting sucked in to these divisive sorts of things. In fact, if you do have a person that's causing that sort of trouble, you warn them once, you warn them a second time, and if they still haven't repented, and you bring them before the church, and they still won't repent, you kick them out. You don't have anything else to do with them. Because, verse number 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So basically, it's his own fault, her own fault, uh, that it's come to this place because they just won't repent. Well, we've got a little bit of time left to finish up this letter. Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tuchicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. So Paul is apparently going to send uh, future messengers to maybe spell uh, Titus on the island of Crete. And at that point, he's supposed to go over to Nicopolis on the west side of what we call the uh, Greek peninsula and meet him there. Uh, I think Paul was getting ready to head off to uh, Spain at that point. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. I think those are the two gentlemen that are carrying this letter. Uh, so they've been with Paul, but now they're on the island of Crete, and they've got something else that they're going to go do next, and Titus is supposed to help them. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help causes of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That's a rep repetition of a lot of the things we've already talked about. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Very common thing to see in one of these letters. Uh, everybody here says hi, and uh, we hope Everybody there feels strongly toward us. Grace be with you all. And thus ends Paul's letter to Titus. When we come back tomorrow, we will shift over to the letters of Peter. <laughs>